If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com/audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com/audio. That's carshield.com/audio. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Kevin Canary here. I wanted to tell you guys about a new book that we just released. It's a vascular surgery oral board review book that I put together with two of my close friends, Ravi Ambani and Andrew Wishy. Ravi, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Thanks for the intro, Kevin. I grew up in a small town in northeastern Pennsylvania before moving down to Philadelphia for all my schooling. I then moved across the state to complete a general surgery residency in Pittsburgh, where I became interested in vascular surgery for the first time. I was fortunate enough to match into a fellowship at University Hospitals in Cleveland, Ohio, and after finishing my training, I decided to stay on as a staff vascular surgeon at the Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA Medical Center. I currently also serve in the role as Associate Program Director for our Integrated Residency and Independent Fellowship Programs. Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Thanks, Ravi. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, I do have a little bit different path. I started off actually my career as a baseball player. Uh, I played baseball for the Razorbacks, University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, Go Hogs. Uh, got drafted by the Texas Rangers baseball team and had a five-year minor league pro career. I then went back to school to get my degree towards the end of that and then uh, ended up attending medical school at Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences. Uh, then went out west to Sacramento, California and completed integrated vascular surgery residency there at uh, UC Davis. And now I'm a board-certified vascular surgeon in San Antonio, Texas. Okay, great. Uh, Ravi, why don't you tell them about how this book came together? So it actually came about pretty organically. I had known Kevin for a few years already, and so he asked me if I wanted to team up with his colleague, Andrew, and virtually study together for the oral boards while he was deployed. So we started studying and writing down scenarios to quiz each other. We quickly realized that nothing really existed to help us simulate the exam or a testing environment. Yeah, so we just kept compiling scenarios while building in twists and turns to keep each other on our toes. And eventually, we were all able to pass our boards on the first try. That's when we realized we needed to formalize our study materials and get them into the hands of everyone out there who has an interest in learning about vascular surgery. That's really how the Vascular Surgery Oral Board Review book was born. Okay, what do you guys think we give our listeners a few cases as samples of what the book has to offer? Yeah, I think that sounds great. What do you think, Robbie? Sounds great, Kevin and Andrew. Dr. Wishy, you have a 78-year-old man who presents to the emergency department with an acute onset of abdominal pain. He has got a past medical history of hypertension and a 40-pack year history. On his intake vitals, he's hypotensive, and the ED bedside ultrasound reveals a large abdominal aortic aneurysm. They immediately call you as the vascular surgeon on call for your assistance. How will you approach this patient? 
Well, I'd immediately evaluate the patient and complete a targeted history and physical exam, focusing on onset of symptoms, location and duration of his pain, and any other relevant past medical history. I'd also examine the abdomen, peripheral pulses, ensure the patient is still mentating well, and repeat a set of vital signs. So you do all that. The pain is actually started one hour ago and radiates to his back. He has hypertension and no other medical conditions. He's uncomfortable, but he is mentating well. On exam, he's got a tender pulsatile abdominal mass and palpable pedal pulses. He's tachycardic with a systolic blood pressure of 100. What's your next step? Yeah, with his presentation and ultrasound findings, I'm concerned for a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm and would recommend large bore IV access and a STAT CTA chest, abdomen, pelvis since the patient is hemodynamically stable. The CTA demonstrates an eight centimeter infrarenal aneurysm with a contained rupture into the retroperitoneum. The neck is about 20 millimeters in length with a diameter of 25 millimeters. There's a healthy non-diseased iliac vessel on each side. The physician taking care of him wants to start a blood transfusion because of the aortic rupture and the fact that his systolic blood pressure is now 90s. Are you okay with that management? No, as long as the patient continues to mentate well, I'd obtain large bore IV access and hold off on the transfusion to allow for permissive hypotension. Okay, so they agreed to hold off on the transfusion. Based on the clinical history and objective findings, how are you going to treat this patient? Well, as uh, described, uh, there is suitable anatomy for an endovascular repair. So I'd bring the patient emergently to the operating room to perform uh, endovascular aneurysm repair under local anesthesia. So you get to the OR, and right before you start, the anesthesiologist lets you know that the patient's now very hypotensive and his mental status is worsening. How would you proceed and approach this problem? So after administration of local anesthesia, I'd start with bilateral ultrasound-guided percutaneous common femoral artery access. I'd upsize the ipsilateral side to a large bore 12 French sheath and place an aortic occlusion balloon supported by the sheath for aortic control in the distal thoracic aorta. Uh, since that's bought me some time, um, I would perform an angiogram through the sheath to uh, see the aortic sizing and introduce the main body up the contralateral side. I deploy the main body, deflate the occlusion balloon, cannulate the contralateral gate, and perform the remainder of the EVAR in the standard fashion. After I had sealed the aneurysm, I would cut down a bilateral femoral arteries to repair those vessels and close the groins. So you're able to do that surgery as you described, and you seal the rupture. You get to the patient to the ICU, and the following morning, the abdomen is tense. He's orguric, despite aggressive fluid resuscitation. What do you think is happening, and how are you going to treat it? Well, the patient's clinical exam now is consistent with abdominal compartment syndrome with evidence of end-organ malperfusion with the oliguria. So i uh, take the patient for a decompressive laparotomy with a plan to leave the abdomen temporarily open for a delayed closure uh, at a later date. All right, we're going to rewind. Now, let's say that you are at a facility where endovascular capabilities are not available. How are you going to approach his rupture now? Well, in that case, I'd plan for open aneurysm repair. Take me through your planned operation. So prior to induction of general anesthesia, I'd widely prep out the abdomen in both groins. Immediately after induction, I'd rapidly perform a midline laparotomy 
I had rapidly exposed the superceliac aorta by reflecting the transverse colon cephalad, entering the lesser sac. I'd longitudinally incised the curl fibers to expose the aorta and place an aortic cross clamp against the vertebral bodies. Um, then I'd pack the small bowel and distal duodenum up into the patient's right. I'd longitudinally incise the retroperitoneal hematoma, uh, making sure to identify the left renal vein. I would mobilize that and retract its cephalad. Then I'd dissect out the infrarenal aorta to identify a clamp site and move the clamp down to this location. I'd heparinize the patient with 80 to 100 uh, units per kilogram and dissect out and clamp both common iliac arteries for distal control. I'd then perform an aortotomy and extend this to the aortic bifurcation and tee off proximally and distally. I would identify and control the IMA and uh, loop it out. Then I'd plan for a tube repair of the aorta with a Dacron graft. At that time, once the proximal and distal anastomosis were complete after appropriate flushing maneuvers, I'd check the IMA for back bleeding, and I would ligate it if it was pulsatile or occluded. Um, if it was anything other than that, I would plan to replant it as a Corel patch to my graft. I would then close the aneurysm sac over the graft, reapproximate the retroperitoneum, and close the abdomen. So you checked the IMA for back bleeding and it was pulsatile. So you ligated it. You're able to restore inline flow and the patient's transferred to the ICU again. On post-op day two, the patient has abdominal pain, dark loose stools, a rising white blood cell count, and is tachycardic. What are your concerns and how will you manage this? Yeah, I'm at this point, I'm concerned that the patient's having colonic ischemia. So I would start the patient on empiric antibiotics for colonic translocation resuscitate with IV fluids and consult the gastroenterology team to perform a flexible sigmoidoscopy to evaluate the degree of ischemia. The sigmoidoscopy showed mild patchy erythema throughout the sigmoid colon. What do you want to do about this? These findings represent mild ischemic changes. So I would manage conservatively with IV fluids, antibiotics, bowel rest, and serial abdominal exams. What if the endoscopy had shown dark spots throughout the colon concerning for transmural ischemia? In that case, the patient now has evidence of severe ischemia and requires a return to the operating room for definitive management of his colonic injury. I'd coordinate with general surgery to perform a sigmoidectomy with colostomy. So you're taking the patient back to the OR and you notice that a portion of your graft is exposed. What will you use to cover it? I would mobilize a pedicle of momentum and secure it over the graft and the retroperitoneal closure. Let's take a few minutes and discuss some of the key learning points and takeaways from this case. First, it's imperative to start by asking for a targeted history and physical exam centered around your working differential diagnosis. The examiners are charged with providing you with most of the information you need to know, but asking for additional details shows them that you have processed what they told you already and are pursuing the correct diagnosis. The first major decision point for this case is determining whether this patient is stable enough for a CTA. Obtaining imaging is helpful in delineating aneurysm morphology and anatomic characteristics. And current data would suggest treating these patients with EVAR is associated with lower morbidity and mortality early on. And the next important concept from this case is allowing for permissive hypotension. Uh, 
These patients are clamping down and lowering their impulse pressure to naturally decrease aortic shear stress and limit blood volume loss. Another survival component to be aware of is that aortic ruptures are frequently contained in the retroperitoneum, and allowing for permissive hypotension may allow for some local clot to form. So if you resuscitate them like other patients in hemorrhagic shock, it may lead to rapid hemodynamic instability. When dealing with a rupture, it's important to communicate with your anesthesia colleagues from the onset. If the patient is induced prior to the operating team being ready to act, cardiovascular collapse could ensue, which could lead to significantly worse outcomes. In this particular case, the patient crashed as soon as you reached the OR. Using endovascular and open techniques to obtain proximal control is key. From an endovascular approach, an aortic occlusion balloon with sheath support, the so-called lollipop technique, is a quick way to buy yourself some time. Open supercelic aortic control is less commonly performed by trainees nowadays, but for the boards, this is a maneuver that should flow off the tip of your tongue. Once you are able, moving the proximal clamp more distally decreases the metabolic stressors associated with supermesenteric and supercelic control. Another key decision is whether the IMA can be ligated or not. Preoperative risk factors, including but not limited to prior colonic surgery and mesenteric occlusive disease can aid in your decision-making process. Interoperatively, if there is pulsatile backbleeding or no backbleeding whatsoever, you are usually safe with ligating the inferior mesenteric artery. It's those vessels with a trickle of flow that you should consider re-implanting. Complications after a ruptured AAA can be vast, and even with the most expedient of care, these can occur. For any operation, having an algorithm for post-operative oliguria is necessary. In our scenario, even when fixed endovascularly, there are still significant fluid shifts from bleeding and aggressive resuscitation. With a closed abdomen, you must have a high index of suspicion, especially with evidence of end-organ ischemia, and even if they're ventilated, sometimes high ventilatory pressures for abdominal compartment syndrome. Another complication that can occur is ischemic colitis. We touched on the management of the IMA earlier, but the key to this process is a stepwise approach to diagnosis and treatment. This is a circumstance where you have to insist on getting a flexible sigmoidoscopy as the findings can significantly affect your management. If possible, medical management should be initiated, but in the cases of severe injury, a reoperation may be required. That was a great summary and kind of hit on a lot of the important points to take away from this case. Now let's move on to our next scenario. Dr. Wishy, take it away. So Dr. Canary, you have a 40-year-old man presenting to the emergency department as a trauma activation after suffering a left posterior knee dislocation when he was tackled playing rugby. He's transported via ambulance from a rural area, and it's been about three hours since the injury. On arrival, he's noted to have an obvious leg deformity and absent pedal pulses. What would you do next? Okay. In this patient, I would begin with an ATLS survey, uh, a medical history, and a physical exam to include heart, lungs, neuromonitor, extremity exam, and a peripheral vascular exam. So he has no significant past medical or surgical history. There's no other injuries. There's an obvious left leg deformity. However, motor and sensory are intact. The right lower extremity vascular exam is normal, but on the left, only the femoral artery pulse is palpable. The left foot only has monophysic pedal signals. What would you do next? 
Okay. So at this point, um, I would ask orthopedic surgery to reduce the knee in the trauma bay. And then I would repeat the left lower extremity vascular exam to see if there is a return of pulses. So orthopedic surgery is unable to reduce his knee and they want to take the patient to the operating room emergently based on the clinical presentation and physical exam. What do you think is going on and what will you do about it? Yeah. So in this situation, I'm concerned about a blunt vascular injury to the popliteal artery and prolonged ischemia to the leg and foot. I would ensure that the patient is placed on a radiolucent table and that the abdomen and bilateral lower extremities are prepped into the field. After they're able to reduce the knee, I would then heparinize the patient and repeat the vascular exam and plan for a diagnostic left lower extremity angiogram. So under anesthesia, they're able to reduce the knee, but there's no improvement in the pulse exam. The angiogram shows a focal occlusion of the popliteal artery at the tibial plateau with reconstitution of the distal popliteal artery with three vessel tibial runoff. What would you do next since it's now been four hours after the initial injury? Yeah. So before the patient is placed in external fixation, I would plan for an above the knee popliteal artery to below the knee popliteal artery bypass with reverse contralateral greater saphenous vein. And I would perform a prophylactic four compartment fasciotomy of the left leg. Okay. Describe that procedure. Okay. So I'd begin with a longitudinal incision of the medial thigh to expose the above the knee popliteal artery, keeping the sartorius muscle down. And then a longitudinal incision on the medial leg, one finger breadth posterior to the tibia to expose the below knee popliteal artery. I would harvest and prepare contralateral saphenous vein and then place it in vein solution. I would confirm adequate heparinization to an ACT of greater than 250. I would make an arteriotomy of the above knee popliteal artery. I would reverse the greater saphenous vein, spatulate the end, and perform an end to side anastomosis using 6-0 proline. I would then ligate the artery distal to the proximal anastomosis. I would tunnel the marked and pressurized greater saphenous vein anatomically and perform an end-to-end anastomosis to the below knee popliteal artery using 6-0 proline. I would ligate the artery proximal to the distal anastomosis. I would then check for pulses, perform a completion angiogram. I would perform prophylactic two-incision, four-compartment fasciotomies. I would perform pulse exam before and after external fixation by orthopedic surgery. So after the revascularization, there's inline flow to the foot on the angiogram, and there are palpable pedal pulses. After the external fixator is applied, however, the patient loses pulses again. What is your next step? At this point, I would shoot another angiogram to evaluate for a technical defect or a kink in the graft. There is a kink in the middle of the graft. How will you address this? So I would have them remove the external fixator. I would take down the distal anastomosis, stretch the vein graft to length, and redo the distal anastomosis. I would then have them reapply the external fixator, shoot another angiogram, and check distal pulses to confirm the issue has been resolved. On repeat angiogram, there is no residual kink in the graft with a quick washout and flow to the foot. The patient has palpable pedal pulses again. How would you follow this patient? So I would initiate aspirin therapy and continue neuromonitor and vascular checks every hour and treat the fasciotomies with wet dry dressings and external compression wraps. Okay, so let's change the scenario a little bit. What if it was a 30-year-old man who presented with a pulseless left foot after a gunshot wound to the left thigh? He's hemodynamically stable with a tense left thigh compartment. So with all trauma patients, I always begin with the ATLS survey. I would then perform medical history, 
determine the time of the injury and perform a neuromonitor exam and peripheral vascular exam of the extremity. So there are no other injuries or fractures seen on plain film. There's no significant past medical or surgical history, and the injury occurred six hours ago. The right lower extremity pulses are palpable, but on the left, the femoral pulse is palpable without any distal pedal pulses or Doppler signals. The left foot is cold with motor and sensory loss. What would you like to do now? Okay, so this is hard signs of vascular injury. I would proceed directly to the operating room for exploration and revascularization. You mean you you wouldn't get a CTA before you went to the operating room? No, not in this case. With an isolated injury, preoperative imaging would delay revascularization and may lead to limb loss. If needed, I would perform an intraoperative angiogram. All right, so take me through your operation. Okay, so I'd widely prep the abdomen and bilateral lower extremities expose and control the left femoral vessels in the groin, as well as above the knee, popliteal artery, and then begin to explore the thigh to identify the location of the vascular injury. So you do this and you find that the SFA is completely transected and the femoral vein is intact, but thrombosed. What would you do now? After ensuring adequate heparinization to an ACT of greater than 250, I would pass an embolectomy balloon catheters proximally and distally in the SFA to restore forward and back bleeding and place and secure a shunt. I would make a transverse venotomy in the common femoral vein and use an Esmark wrap to express any distal venous clot and pass embolectomy balloon catheters proximally in the vein and then close the defect in the vein. At this point, I would check for pedal Doppler signals and for a phasic flow in the vein. So you were able to successfully place an arterial shunt to restore a pedal posterior tibial signal, as well as return phasic flow to the femoral vein. What would you do next? So at this point, I would harvest and reverse a segment of right greater saphenous vein. I would debride the artery to healthy tissue and perform an interposition bypass of the SFA. Afterwards, I would shoot a completion angiogram from the left common femoral artery. On angiogram, the repair is patent but the flow through the posterior tibial artery is sluggish. How would you interpret this finding? So it is possible that there's already some reperfusion injury on the left leg uh, due to compartment syndrome. So I would perform a two incision, four compartment fasciotomy and repeat the angiogram. So you do that and the flow now is very brisk into the foot. What would you do next? So at this point, I would close the surgical incisions. I would leave the fasciotomy sites open with wet-to-dry dressings and continue the patient on a therapeutic heparin drip and follow the neuromonitor and vascular exams in the ICU hourly. So let me ask you a question. Why did you treat the femoral and popliteal vein thrombosis? So in these patients, treating the venous thrombosis in conjunction with the arterial transection improves the venous outflow of the revascularized leg. Treating the arterial injury alone may lead to complicated venous hypertension and potentially limb loss. Excellent work, Dr. Canary. Let's use some time to review the important teaching points from this case. In trauma cases, you can't really go wrong by starting with an ATLS survey. From a strategy standpoint, it also gives you a line to say without thinking much so you can take a breath and prepare to dominate the rest of the scenario. With any extremity trauma, There are several steps that should be taken independent of which limb is affected. First, you should obtain a timeline of when the injury occurred to determine how long the limb has been ischemic. Second, you should perform a baseline neurovascular exam. And third, you should reassess the extremity after reduction or fixation. Upon initial evaluation in the bay, if the ABI or 
risk brachial index is less than 0.9, diagnostic imagery is warranted. But if there are hard signs of vascular injury, proceeding directly to the operating room is the right decision. For a quick review of the hard signs of vascular injury, they are pulsatile bleeding, arterial thrill or brewery, signs of distal ischemia, including neuromotor dysfunction and expanding hematoma. At the first part of this case, we were dealing with a popliteal injury. Although there are a few different approaches to tackling this injury, the most expeditious option is a contralateral GSV bypass from the above-knee popliteal artery to the below-knee popliteal artery with an interval ligation. If at any point during your evaluation or treatment, the affected limb undergoes further manipulation, don't forget to go back to the basics and check the vascular exam. It's better to figure out there's a problem in the OR than after you've left the room. Prophylactic fasciotomies tend to be a controversial subject, but I'd have a low threshold to perform this relatively low morbidity procedure in the trauma setting, especially when I'm taking the boards. Usually these patients have normal perfusion, so an abrupt cutoff to their arterial supply leads to a higher rate of reperfusion injury after inline flow is reestablished. As the case evolved, now there's a limb-threatening scenario, but from a penetrating injury. Once again, remember the basics. Start with an ATLS survey, establish a timeline, control hemorrhage as needed, evaluate for shock, and swiftly proceed to the operating room with a hard sign of vascular injury. Yeah, so a few of the key takeaways is always obtain proximal and distal control, and then dive in and explore the area of injury. You want to keep a concise stepwise approach to these scenarios. So I like to first restore inline flow by placing a shunt. Then you have time to address the other injuries. With venous injuries, your choices for handling the injury are ligation, patch, or bypass. In this case, the vein is thrombosed and open thrombectomy is an effective way to clear fresh venous clot and doesn't take much time. The final point for this case is the reason to address the femoral popliteal venous thrombus. Even with arterial revascularization, Ligation or occlusion of the popliteal vein can lead to severe venous hypertension, worsen compartment syndrome, and increase the risk of limb loss. Thanks, guys. Those are some great cases. There sure was a lot for our listeners to learn from, and the brief commentary afterwards really stressed the key components and takeaways from each scenario. Thanks, Kevin. We really hope everyone got a lot out of this episode, and it was really fun to put this all together to showcase a few scenarios from our new vascular surgery oral board review book. Yeah, if you like what you heard, you will love this book. It has 60 cases presented in an easy-to-read question-and-answer format that covers nearly all of the V-score topics. You and your buddies will actually enjoy studying this material. It was purposely designed to be used to study alone and also with a partner or a small group. The true power of the book comes alive the more you become familiar with the material. We found this true when we were studying together. We would take the basic framework of the scenario and improvise our own twists and turns, making you even more prepared for whatever the examiner chooses to throw your way. The Vascular Surgery Oral Board Review Book is available now on Amazon and can also be found on the Behind the Knife premium page. We'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Knife. If you liked what you heard today, share the episode, leave a comment, and subscribe to the channel so you'll never miss a new episode. Until next time, dominate the day. 
Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.